and now to introduce today's speaker. I'm really pleased to be joined by Dr. Nora Lursch, a nurse practitioner with the Providence Cancer Institute Gynecologic Oncology Clinic West. Nora became a nurse practitioner in 1994, graduating from East Tennessee State University and later earned her doctorate from the Carlo University. She also has additional training through the University of Michigan School of Social Works Sexual Counseling Program. Nora brings years of clinical experience at Southwest Michigan, as well as the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, where in 2021, she started the Women's Inclusive Sexual Health Clinic. In 2022, Nora relocated to Portland and joined the Providence Medical Center's Gynecologic Oncology Program, as well as the high-risk breast clinic. She has lectured previously on sexual health and cancer, as well as sexual health and aging, and we are so delighted to bring her expertise to Grand Rounds today. Thank you. Good morning, thanks for joining us. I love to talk about sex. It's a great topic, but I think it's really, hopefully uh, you'll learn that it's important to our patients and I'll hopefully provide some uh, easy ways for you to broach the topic and some ideas for you to help patients if they're struggling with this issue. Whoops, it's not going forward. Oh, there, I just had to use the clicker. All right. So I, no financial disclosures, unfortunately. And our objectives are today to define sexual health, understand what the sexual response cycle is, recognize what the biopsychosocial impacts are on sexual health, identify how chronic illness impacts it, and review how to incorporate the PISIT model into your practice, which is pretty easy, and we'll discuss that more. And we'll formulate plans that you can help to improve your patient's health. So chronic illness and sexual health. We all know that as a society, we're aging. Right now, uh, we have about 54 million Americans that are 65 or older. By 2060, we're gonna make up about a quarter percent of the population. And the numbers for just a few of our chronic diseases are pretty high as of present. We have over 27 million Americans that have arthritis. We have over 30 million that have type two diabetes. And one in 20 adults have um, that are older than 20 have coronary artery disease. So that's 5% of the population. And in those populations, there's a high incidence of sexual dysfunction. So these are just a few of the statistics. You can get lots of statistics on this. Type two diabetes uh, with men have a 70% um, evidence of erectile dysfunction in one study. There's an association between psychological distress and decreased sexual activity and function in patients with cardiovascular disease. We know that patients with cancer have a high proportion of sexual dysfunction, especially gynecological and breast cancer patients. 30% of patients with anxiety or depression report sexual dysfunction. And it's noted to be higher with those with rheumatoid arthritis compared to healthy controls, which is pretty common sense. So basically, when you have somebody that has a chronic illness, they're two to six times more likely to have sexual dysfunction than those without chronic illness of the same sex or gender. And that there is an association between chronic illness and arousal, erection, and orgasm issues. And we're going to go into depth about that. 
And there's also uh, a greater likelihood of sexual dysfunction, the more burden of chronic illness that you have, which is common sense. So what are some of the obstacles? Why don't we talk about sex with our patients? We know that patients overall want their providers to ask about sexual health concerns. That's been studied um, and is, is evident in the literature. And unfortunately, we were found as providers to repeatedly ignore this topic. Um, so I'm hoping uh, as you get a little bit more comfortable, you'll feel uh, better prepared to talk about this issue with your patients. One study, one meta-analysis looked at 50 studies of chronic illness and sexual health, and patients definitely wanted their providers to initiate it. They're not going to bring it up with you. You need to ask. They desire the uh, issue to be part of their routine care, so it doesn't need to be a big talk one time. It needs to be smaller talks frequently, checking in on patients. And younger patients definitely want you to bring up the issue, especially early on in their disease um, state. And why don't we bring it up? Well, there's definitely a lack of time. That's always an issue for, for us with our patients. So hopefully today you'll get some quick tips to help your patients. We definitely have a lack of training. Many of us had no training in our schooling on this issue. There may be gender issues. You may not feel comfortable if you're a male talking to a female, female talking to a male. Uh, you might have a personal discomfort. You may have suffered some type of sexual trauma in your past. One in five people do suffer sexual trauma, so this could be a trigger for you. You might have some embarrassment bringing it up and not sure how to broach what to do with them if they do have a issue. And then we often prioritize prognosis over personal issues. Um, we, we concentrate on the nitty gritty of the medical issues and don't get into the psychosocial issues as much. And definitely patients want us to bring this issue up. They have embarrassment about it. They feel that they shouldn't be possibly worried about something that's trivial. So they uh, tend to minimize these issues. And they may have an issue if you're the same gender too. They found that that's uh, prevalent in studies. So we know that we need to bring it up, but what exactly is sexual health? It's a state, I love this, this uh, definition because it's the World Health Organization's definition and what most sexologists use when we talk about sexual health. It's a state of physical, emotional, mental, and social well-being in relation to sexuality, but it's not merely the absence of disease or dysfunction or infirmity. And it requires a positive and respectful approach to sexuality and sexual relationships. You want it to be a safe space. You don't want to have coercion, discrimination, or violence. And like I said, many Americans, uh, many people have been uh, subject to sexual violence or discrimination. So it's important that we are making a safe space for our patients when we're discussing this issue. And for sexual health to be attained and maintained, the uh, sexual rights of all persons should be respected, protected, and fulfilled. And hopefully lectures like this help this to um, come to fruition. And chronic illness um, has a multifactorial and complex impact on sexual health. And it's out of the scope of this talk to just talk about specific diseases. I'm going to co uh, cover a couple, uh, type 2 diabetes and diabetes, but you, I want you to understand the correlation between any chronic illness and sexual health. There's parallels between all of them, and so that's what I want you to take away from today. So what is the sexual response cycle? This is probably what we learned in school. The four stages of sexual responding are excitement, plateau, 
orgasm and resolution, and you've probably seen this schemata before. The one thing that I do want to point out from this, this was Masters and Johnson, is for men there is a resting period after orgasm, which they cannot achieve another orgasm. That's not true for women. But I'm going to show you this busy slide. This is uh, Rosemary Bassan's model, and she came up with this in the early 2000s, and I think this much more represents what a sexual response cycle entails. It's pretty busy. There's a lot going on, and especially for women, there is a lot going on when there's a response cycle. So if you look in the bottom uh, left-hand corner, there's multiple reasons that someone might want to become sexually active, and so you need to think about those reasons, and there needs to be motivation for someone to want to be sexually active and they need to be willing to be receptive to this. And this is so important for women, uh, and we'll talk about this uh, in a few slides, to be able to accept the sexual stimulation that they're getting and be in the right context. Context is really, really important. They need to be able to psychologically and biologically process this. And so sometimes diseases are going to impact both of those avenues. And so sometimes you will not get the subjective arousal or the spontaneous desire. And so that's where a lot of the issues can come up. Um, but if you do get past that and you have arousal and response to sexual desire, you hopefully get to sexual satisfaction, which can be with or without orgasm, which is really important. And in chronic illness, I often emphasize that the goal does not need to be uh, having an orgasm, but rather having intimacy. And this emphasizes that there's many non-sexual rewards to having a sexual relationship. There's intimacy, well-being, lack of a negative effects from sexual avoidance. I have patients that have a lot of guilt around not being able to have sex with their partner. They love their partner very much. They want to be able to show their partner, but they're not able to have the response that they want. And this is just a uh, simplified version. So you have arousal, desire, a sexual response, and hopefully intimate intimacy, relationship, and satisfaction. So you have desire. What influences desire? We have neurotransmitters in our brain. We have hormones like estrogen and testosterone, and I love that we're going to have a talk next week on testosterone. That's an important uh, subject. And we have we need to have an intact sensory system. And so, so many chronic diseases can affect our sensory system. But multiple other things from chronic illness can affect desire, like our body image. We have maybe arthritis and we're not exercising as much, so we're gaining weight. We have type two diabetes and we have neuropathy. We may have uh, fatigue or pain. These all impact somebody's desire. And you need to have an intact vascular system and an intact sensory and parasympathetic nervous system. And so you can imagine many of the diseases that we treat for patients impact these systems and can, and can impact the blood flow to the pelvis. And then the neuropathic system we need for sensation, arousal, orgasm. And when this is affected, uh, then you don't have orgasm and that could be a big problem for patients. And the brain coordinates all of these. It coordinates the hormonal release and physical arousal. And I always say it's the most important sex organ for women. I say the penis is the most important sex organ for men. For women, it's the brain. And that's all around context. There have been many studies that have shown now that context is one of the most important aspects of sexual arousal and desire for women. And what is context? Uh, Dr. Nagoski, I don't know if you guys have ever um, read her book, but it's fabulous. Uh, she talks about uh, 
context in the form of tickling. So say you are watching a funny comedy with your partner, it's a nice evening, and your partner reach over, reaches over and tickles you. You might find that arousing. It's in the right context. But say you're cooking dinner and your 13-year-old needs math homework help and your toddler is crying and the dog is barking at the Amazon driver and your partner comes up and tickles you. You're probably not going to receive that in the same manner. That's all what context is for women. Context is really important for women and how they receive sexual uh, input. And then arousal is also very different in men than it is in women. They've actually done a study where they looked at arousal in uh, both sexes. They have devices where they can measure for men, they place it on the penis and they can uh, monitor blood flow and erection. And they showed men several different erotic uh, videos or pictures. Some were intimate, some were violent, some were same sex, some were heteros heterosexual images. And the men monitored their arousal based on what they were seeing and the uh, and the researchers were able to monitor whether they had a physical arousal. And they were able to show that the men had a 50% concordance between what they were seeing and what they were feeling, which in psychosocial research is very high. When they did this same experiment with women, they placed something in the vagina, they measured blood flow and lubrication, they showed them the videos and the images, what they found for women that was there was only a 10% concordance between what they were seeing and saying what they were feeling and what their body was doing. So you can have a lot of non-concordance between for women between what the stimulation is and what their body is doing. And for women, understanding that can be really important because many times they get bogged down in, well, you know, I used to be able to become aroused by XYZ and now I can't. And so we talk a lot about just changing the sexual script and understanding how your body has changed from when you were younger or previous to chronic illness and how it is now and how you can adapt to that. So that's really important. And this is just funny. So not experiencing orgasm, I want to point out, is not sexual dysfunction. One in 10 women don't experience an orgasm in their lifetime. It's a learned, uh, process through experience, experimentation, and self-awareness. And certainly if this is a big issue for women, they can work with a sexual counselor or therapist to try to achieve this. But sometimes with chronic illness, if they have a uh, disruption in their uh, vascular or uh, neuropathic pathways, then they may not be able to achieve orgasm. And the goal is to try to reconfigure and reframe how they feel about themselves as a sexual being and what their goals are for sex in the future. And that it can be intimacy and closeness rather than performance. So that's why a biopsychosocial approach is important. Sexuality is a psychological and inter interpersonal process rather than a biological and individual process. And when we look at it in this, in this way, it emphasizes that the problems that you might experience should be approached as the complex phenomenon they are. They can have multiple causes and it can be multi-dimensional. So this is just a schemata of when you're looking at this, you have the biological issues, the psychological issues, social, interpersonal, and social cultural. 
And what does that mean? So you can have comorbid conditions. I have not listed them. This is not an exhaustive list, but all of these diseases can impact your sexual health. And so can these cultural and social issues. You might have, uh, and I'm just going to go over a couple of them. You might have something regarding uh, a cultural issue, say uh, you're not able to be with this partner because they're not the correct race or they're not the correct uh, religion, and that impacts how you feel about yourself or about the process, the sexual health process with your partner. You may have had non-consexual sex in the past and that is impacting how you feel about yourself. You may have substance abuse issues. Nutrition impacts it. When I'm talking with women, I talk a lot about um, good health and good nutrition and exercise is important because how you feel about yourself and how your body responds to exercise is important in the sexual response cycle. There can be gender issues and there can be infection issues that can all impact how one feels about sexual health. So let's look a little bit more about specific diseases and medications that may impact sexual health. One thing I wanna point out is there are not a lot of studies on non-binary, same-sex or transgender patients. Um, so this is all extrapolated for them. Um, it's uh, unfortunately an area that needs more research. I wanna look specifically at diabetes because we have so many patients that have diabetes. It's obviously a multi-system disease, impacts multiple aspects of sexual health. And you have a loss of endothelial function, affection, say dysfunction, which impacts lubrication for women. It can impact orgasm and arousal for men and women. And so this can, as I said before, 70% of men with type two diabetes can experience erectile dysfunction. Uh, and then you have neuropathy, which can affect sensation and orgasm and can affect um, if they have having neuropathy in their fingers, can affect how they can touch each other, how they receive touch, how they give touch. This is all very important. And for cardiovascular disease, unfortunately, most of the studies are middle or later age men. There's a lack of study uh, of women in sexual activity relating to their fear of cardiac events or their risk of cardiac events in sexual health. So again, we're extrapolating. But the most important thing is education. Cardiovascular, it's important that we educate patients on the cardiovascular risks and sexual activity because they have a lot of fear once they've had an MI, once they've had an event, that sexual activity could bring on that event again. So reassurance and education is important. They may be on medications or they may have arousal issues once they've um, developed cardiovascular disease. It's important to let patients know that this may be an issue. And just having that awareness helps for them to have a loss of the guilt that they may be feeling because they may not be able to have the erection or have the orgasm that they had before. And so it's really important that we discuss this with patients. Although it does impact the vascular neuropathic pathways, the biggest thing that patients are concerned about is their fear. So it's essential that we discuss this and that we educate patients. Basically, sexual activity with a partner is thought to be comparable to mild to moderate physical activity. Um, it's generally in the range of three to four METs, and we know that that's a metabolic equivalent. And it's comparable to walking up two flights of steps or walking briskly for a short duration. So if your patients can achieve that level of activity, you can reassure them that they can have sexual activity without fear of an MI. Um, 
the risk for ischemia during sexual activity if you achieve this is very low. And the other important thing, and this is also true, we'll talk about this in a few slides, is the more sex you have, the less risk you have. So encourage your patients to have sex. It's actually good for them. Um, they found that uh, individuals with regular sexual activity about one hour a week had a less relative risk for MI than those with less frequent activity. And MIs during sexual activity are very rare. Uh, and especially if the patients are more physically active, you're gonna see less of an issue with this. So what are some recommendations that we can give patients? Time is limited. We want to be able to do some encouragement and some education and how can we do that in a precise fashion? Well, I like the PLICIT model. This was developed by a sexologist and is applicable to anybody that's in uh, healthcare. It is permission, limited information, specific suggestions, and intensive therapy. And what does that mean? Permission to give patients the space and the time to raise the issue. A lot of times, if we give patients permission to discuss the issue, that's all they need. They don't need any further uh, counseling or help. They just need affirmation that, yes, that must be a problem for you. And you can go on to give them information, but just the acknowledgement can be beneficial. Limited information can just be a few things where you help them um, understand their side effects that might be occurring because of their treatment or their disease process. If you have time, you can go into more specific suggestions. Not Most patients aren't going to need this. They're mostly going to need one and two, permission and limited information. So it can be applicable that you can put these into your practice and just do simple uh, education for patients. Some patients though are going to need intensive therapy and you can refer to things like an ASEC therapist. That's the American Association of Sexual Educators, Counselors and Therapists. There are multiple ASEC counselors in Portland, which is great. You can also refer to physical therapy. They have a lot of training physical floor therapists in sexual health and can be a great resource for you. And then I'm going to discuss how you can refer to me at the end. So I do want to just go through this quick video um, that explains a little bit more about the PLICIT process. Oh I want to show you something. <clears throat> in 1974, a man named Jack Annan came up with a model to address sexual health issues called the PLICIT model, and I love it. PLICIT is an acronym that stands for Permission, Limited Information, Specific Suggestions, and Intensive Therapy. So much of what I knew about behavior change and cognition, theories of helping professionals came from other fields like psychology and social work. When I found out about the PLICIT model, there was this really cool sense of pride that there was a model that my field, sexology, could contribute to others. And so it has. If you're not sexology bound, this model is still gonna help you. Jack Annan proposed that sexual health issues go through four tiers. I've got containers. So if 100 people have a sexual health concern, many of them can resolve it with permission. Permission to stay the same, permission to change, permission to get help. From there, about half need more. 
limited information. Limited, as in specific to what that person needs for their specific sexual health issue. I'm not gonna share everything I know about sexuality. I'm gonna share what pertains to them at this moment. I'd like to joke that if this wasn't the case, if my information wasn't limited, then it would be called the PISIT model. Right, so limited information looks like statistics, vocabulary, anatomy drawings, whatever pertains to the topic at hand. From there, maybe there's 20 of the original 100 that need specific suggestions. What exactly to do? Home assignments and instructions. These three tiers are what comprise the work of clinical sexologists. The last tier is pretty rare for clinical sexologists. They'll usually refer out to those handful of folks that need intensive therapy. It depends on the profession whether or not this person is qualified to do the counseling, give the extensive time and investigation needed to address these folks. This is things related to family of origin, abuse, complex underlying causes of the sexual health issue. Let's take, for example, women experiencing anorgasmia. Anorgasmia referring to not being able to have orgasm, not ever having one, or not knowing how to get one back. They're uncommon or difficult to achieve. Here's the permission. This is not unusual or wrong. You are not broken. You have my permission to masturbate, to talk with partners, to talk with a clinical sexologist, and to grieve. If that doesn't cover it, limited information. It's common for women to not orgasm and seek help if they want it. The National Survey of Sexual Health and Behavior, big comprehensive study of sex behaviors in the United States, found that 36% of women reported not having an orgasm at their most recent sexual events. Other studies have found that 15% of women have difficulties with it and one in 10 haven't orgasmed ever. Still need more specific suggestions. Today, there are a number of effective solutions to address your concerns. The solutions I offer greatly depend upon the person's unique sexuality. Typically though, women not experiencing orgasm are also not masturbating. So I may suggest writing a letter to your vulva and letting it respond. Or you could watch the sun's music video, Romantic Death. So there's this website called Beautiful Agony where people upload torso shots of themselves masturbating. And this band called The Sun has a song called Romantic Death where they take a compilation of these beautiful agony videos and they display people masturbating while their lyrics play. Remember, I know my clients' sex histories, their entire health and well-being, their fears and needs before I make recommendations. I really like Romantic Death, but not everyone has given themselves permission to engage in watching sex acts. All right, so back to more specific suggestions. I may recommend styles, positions, or other masturbation techniques. And fantasies. Truth. A lack of fantasy correlates with sexual dysfunction or what I call sexual difficulties. There is a connection between the mind and body. From there, if the situation requires a more psychological approach or time, I may refer out. Maybe they need marriage counseling. Maybe they need a grief therapist. I do the sex stuff. Like I said, intensive therapy is pretty rare. This is based on my experience and Jack Annan's. Three tiers cover just about everybody. Awesome, right? For those of you really interested in this, Davis and Taylor extended Jack Annan's Plicit model in 06. They stress that permission giving should be incorporated in all four tiers and that it is the responsibility of the helping professional to really look at their biases. They noted this explicitly. Get it? Extended, plicit, explicit. Sadly, and I say selfishly, Jack Annan isn't around anymore to teach you this himself. He passed in 2005. Someday I'd really love to commission a sculpture in his honor, or you have my permission to do so. That was a lot, right? <laughs> so. Physiologically and psychologically, the less you have sex, the less you want to have sex. So that's where I say sex is a use it or lose it proposition. So one of the things that you can counsel patients is if they have not been having regular sexual activity, to start to do a, something as simple as a date night and just maybe once a month where they're taking time with their partner and they're just doing some intimate touching. It doesn't have to be sex. 
doesn't have to be vaginal penile penetration. It can just be intimacy. And that can start to increase the hormones that go to the brain, that go to the pathways that lead to arousal. And I tell women uh, and men often that arousal uh, in your brain is sort of like a bike pathway. And if you haven't taken that pathway in a long time, it grows over with weeds and you can't get through it. And so you need to take that pathway regularly to keep it open to have arousal and to have um, uh, orgasm. And so it's important that you try to take the time and you schedule regular date nights, regular activity. I also um, talk about subjective and reactive arousal or not subjective, I'm sorry, spontaneous and reactive arousal. So spontaneous arousal is what we have when we're young or what we see in the movies. And that's where you look at somebody and you're swept off your feet and you have this moment of sexual activity. That's not reality for most people. Most people have reactive arousal, which they need some stimulation and they have to be in the right context, like I talked about before, for them to have an arousal for the hormones that need to be generated to generate into the brain and for you to have the response. So it's important that you put the time in and you schedule in our busy lives. It's important to schedule sex. If you're talking about medications, uh, interestingly, when I was doing research for this, I found that medications don't seem to be as big of an issue as we used to think so, especially beta blockers. They have not been found to be as prominent in sexual dysfunction as we once thought. Uh, there were only five reports per thousand patients that they had sexual dysfunction in one study, and the rate of impotence in men was only three in a thousand that were on beta blockers, so usually not the issue. Antihypertensives in general did not appear to impact sexual function in women, but they did find that thiazide diuretics and aldosterone did decrease lubrication in women and caused ED in men. So you might want to consider switching to a from a thiazide to a loop diuretic. And the other big um, medication problem is SSRIs in women can cause anorgasma, which can be a, an issue because if it's helping their depression and anxiety, then that's possibly going to help with sexual health issues, but if it's causing anorgasm and that's a big issue for women, you might want to consider switching over to something like Walbutrin because that doesn't carry as much of an issue for orgasm. And I like this one. Why are there never any good side effects? Just once I'd like to read an education bottle that says may it cause extreme sexiness. One of the things you can easily recommend for patients is mindfulness. They found that this is helpful for both men and women. For women, it's helped low sexual desire, genital pain, and sexual dysfunction related to gynecological cancers. For men, they did a mindfulness group therapy that helped prostate cancer patients. And this is easy. I also recommend this in my breast clinic because mindfulness has been shown to help decrease stress and stress helps to decrease cancer. There's multiple apps that are available, so I encourage people to just start mindfulness for five or 10 minutes a day using one of these apps. Very easy to incorporate into one of your suggestions for your patients. And then PT, really underutilized. If your patients are having issues with um, erectile dysfunction, orgasm, pelvic pain, physical therapy is really your friend in this situation. It does require a pelvic floor therapist, and so you have to do a referral in EPIC to them. These are the area uh, places in our area that have physical floor therapists in their center. It does take a couple of months sometimes to get in, so let your patients know that they may have delay in getting in, 
but they can work on uh, pain, they can do dilator therapy, they can help if they're having issues with constipation or incontinence, which certainly can affect their sexual health, then those can all be addressed by the pelvic floor therapist. And then lubrications, really important in postmenopausal women. Um, I always tell women that your vagina, unfortunately after menopause, can be like your mouth without saliva. And so you have to do something when you're having uh, intercourse to, do to use lubrication. Interestingly, the only lubrication that's been shown not to disrupt the endothelial of the vulva and the vagina is Uber Lube and Good Clean Love, and that's by the World Health Organization. Um, but you're going to have patients that are going to use uh, lubrications other than those two. There's water-based, silicone-based, and oil-based. And water-based is probably the one that I recommend the least. And that's because when you apply it and then you have friction, it's going to be absorbed into the skin. And so these are the lubrications that patients will say, well, it helps in the beginning, but then it seems to wear out. So want to avoid a lot of times water-based. But for some patients, that's the only thing that doesn't cause any irritation to them. Uh, and so it, if that's the case, I generally recommend good clean love. Silicone-based have uh, more of a propensity to stick around, um, but the trouble is some people will say that they're messy. Um, I do like UberLube the best, um, but these are uh, Pure and KY or some other silicone-based. And then you have the oil-based. I have a lot of women that like to use something that they consider natural, and so they use coconut or olive oil. Woo Coconut Oil is a name, name brand, but I tell women to just get a small uh, travel bottle uh, for shampoo and place it, uh, the oil in that and keep it at their bedside. You do need to place a towel down because it is gonna stay in the sheets and you um, have to be careful if you're using uh, silicone-based uh, toys or condoms because it can degrade those. Um, but really important and should be used each time with intercourse. I tell people to use it in foreplay, place it on uh, your partner's penis, if your partner has is uh, male, and to place it on your vulva, and also on the inside of the vagina, and you can use that all during foreplay. And then moisturizers, really important for postmenopausal women, and need to use these regularly. These are different than lubrication. Good Clean Love makes one, Reverie, Halogen, and Replense. Some come with hyaluronic acid, which is uh, more intense therapy if they're having a little bit more problems and they don't want to go to estrogen, but they want something more than just a basic moisturizer. It can be as effective as estrogen replacement therapy if it's used regularly. They've done several studies in breast cancer patients and have found this. And I tell women, you'll, it'll say on the package to use it two to three times a week. I tell women to start to get used to using this just like they do moisturizing their face. So just put a, a small amount on their index finger and just take their index finger and rub it on the inside of their vagina daily. And this helps a couple of things. One, it gets, helps them to get used to touching themselves if they're not used to that. It helps to apply the moisturizer where it needs to go. And just the act of placing that in the vagina and the friction helps to increase blood flow and so can help to decrease atrophy. So really important. And then there's also, if they're having actual atrophy changes, you can use topical estrogen. And this has been found to be very safe in women. It's not been found to be systemically absorbed. In the first two weeks when you use it, you have a small bump in estradiol levels. And then after two weeks, the estradiol levels generally go down to undetectable. 
there's three forms. There's a cream, there's a tablet or a suppository, and there's a ring that you can place in the vagina. The cream is generally, I tell people to apply one gram. And again, you have an applicator you can use, but I tell women to just put it on their finger and just place it in the vagina. Do that nightly for two weeks and then two to three times a week for maintenance. And then the Vagifem is nightly for two weeks again, and then the maintenance is just twice a week. And the E-string you actually place in the vagina for 90 days and then change it out. This can't be used for women though that have prolapse or have stenosis because obviously they're not gonna be able to keep the ring in. Um, so you do need to understand and know that their uh, vagina is adequate for an E-string. This has the very least systemic absorption. So in the cancer patients that I see, if they're very, very worried about um, estrogen uptake in their bodies, uh, I recommend E-string. And then fatigue, fatigue is huge. And so just acknowledging that for your patients and letting them know if you're in chronic pain or you have chronic fatigue, that's certainly going to impact your sexual response cycle. And you're not going to feel like having sex as much as you did when you didn't have this issue. So just uh, acknowledging that for patients can go a long way and helping them to be realistic in their goals. I have patients that often come in and say, you know, we used to have sex two or three times a week and, you know, I want to get back to that. But is that really a realistic goal for them? Set more achievable, realistic goals in the beginning. Maybe it's just once a month that you're having sex and that's getting you back into the pattern of having regular sex. And be, an, um, uh, willing to understand that um, pleasure and intimacy is much more important than function. So it doesn't need to be goal-oriented sex. It needs to be uh, worrying more about intimacy, connection with your partner, closeness with your partner, and that's what's going to lead to arousal and increased libido. And definitely value variability. If they do have chronic pain, um, this is important. Um, counsel them to use their pain medicine before sexual activity. Uh, a lot of people don't think about pre-medicating for sex, but it's an important aspect of treating when you have chronic illness. And I usually counsel them to take a bath or a hot shower beforehand if they have chronic joint pain, it can really help. You can use a wedge pillow, especially under the hips that can help if you have hip or back pain. You can experiment with different positions. Certainly, if one of the partners has um, arthritis in their knees, they shouldn't be on, on the dominant position. Uh, they should be on the uh, uh, laying on their backs. They can be side to side. They can do chair sitting. There's different positions, and patients don't often understand that there's more than one position in sex. So you can talk to them about that. Um, and again, focusing on intimacy and not focusing on function is really important. So for medications, we do use PDE5 inhibitors, and that's for treatment of ED. It can be in patients that have stable cardiovascular disease, but shouldn't be used in patients that have nitrate therapy. Um, if they do have nitrate therapy and they are going, you are going to give them an um, a inhibitor, you want to make sure that they don't take the um, nitrate within 24 hours of sildenafil or verdenafil administration and not within 48 hours of tadalafil administration. So that's important. These are the medications that you can give patients. Um, and one of the things is that you can give 
uh, patients a low dose of this uh, on a regular basis so that they don't have to take it prior to sexual activity. They can have a more spontaneous arousal if they want, but there are side effects associated with the medications. You can have headaches, flushing, dyspepsia. There is an altered vision, uh, color vision that can happen. Some patients can get some pain. You can have hypotension and rhinitis. You definitely don't want to use it in patients that have had a stroke or an MI in the past six months, if they have heart failure or unstable angina, or if they're on alpha blockers. And then for women, in the premenopausal setting only, there are two medications that are indicated for hyposexual um, arousal disorder. And so this is if they're having uh, problems with libido. There is uh, filbanserin, uh, which is Addy, and that's a pink pill that's taken 100 milligrams a day. It takes a while to become effective and uh, can take up to four to eight weeks. And I, we've not had a lot of luck with this. There was one study that just came out recently in breast cancer patients that showed that they did have some success with this. But in general, I have patients that um, don't feel it helps or they get side effects with it. And I think that that stems a lot because of what we talked about of how it's such a complex process for sexual arousal. And just taking a pill to help that process isn't going to be enough. You really have to look at context and arousal and desire uh, and not just uh, one quick fix. There's also remelatitide, which is an injection, and I just haven't had women really want to take an injection before sex. That sort of gets you out of the mood. Um, and the other big issue with this is nausea. So the patients that I have tried it with have all had nausea. Um, but these are available. They've not been studied in postmenopausal women. No reason to think that they wouldn't be helpful if they were helpful in premenopausal women, but they haven't done those studies yet. And then I did want to just talk about a case study. This was a 69-year-old that presented to me with decreased libido and dyspareunia, and she had multiple comorbid conditions. She had breast cancer and was on Faslodex. She had uh, chemo-induced neuropathy. She had hypothyroidism, sleep apnea. I always think that's just such a lovely way to become erotic with the CPAP machine on you. That just really sets the mood. Um, GERD. And she also had chronic hip and low back pain on, and was on Vicodin for this. They hadn't had sex in six years when she came to see me. Um, her husband had developed a lot of sexual or health issues, including having had an MI, and she had a lot of fear around having sex with him, and he had a lot of fear. But over the last two years, they had really focused on health and wellness and had gotten more fit. And her husband's libido had really come back and was very robust, but unfortunately hers was not meeting his libido. And so there was a non-concordance there. She also was suffering from some vulvar and vaginal discomfort and some, uh, the last time they had had sex, she had had pain with sex. So I used the Plicit model with them, gave her permission to discuss these issues. Um, and that really was the biggest thing that she needed. She just needed to talk it out and just understand that she was not less than because she wasn't having sex and that there were some avenues that she could take to try to rekindle the romance and the intimacy with her partner. I did check to make sure that she was euthyroid. I prescribed topical estrogen for her because she was having uh, atrophic changes, which is now called genitourinary syndrome of menopause, GSM. 
And I encourage her to masturbate. Um, this is a couple of things. It helps to increase libido, but it also increases blood flow to the pelvis. So that helps with her atrophy. So I encourage her just once a week to masturbate and see if this would start to help uh, with her libido. I had her husband get an opinion with his cardiologist to make sure that he felt that he was um, cleared for sexual activity. She wanted to specifically hear from him that from the cardiologist that it was okay. I encouraged her to pre-medicate before she was sexually active so that she didn't have hip and back pain. And we did talk about um, some positions, but I also encouraged her to focus before they ever had sexual activity to just focus on intimacy, to just have a couple of nights where they were just touching and finding what areas on their body might be erotic, what areas feel good, what touch feels good, and become more familiar with that. And then I encourage them to continue exercise and good nutrition. And I followed up with her um, about three months after that, and she had noticed a great improvement. She was able to have intercourse without pain, thanks to the estrogen. And she felt like the intimacy with her and her husband were improving. So that was great. So in summary, chronic disease can cause uh, potentially neurological and vascular dysfunction, and that can lead to changes in just desire, arousal, or orgasm. And it has uh, the potential to cause pain and fatigue, which can also lead to changes in desire and arousal. So it's essential that we counsel patients regarding this, give them permission to talk about this, and um, discuss what impacts these disease processes might have on their sexual health. So I encourage you when you're doing your wellness care with your patients to just ask simply, are you sexually active? And do you have any concerns about your future sexual health? You might be surprised the answers you get and the, where the discussions go. And I do want to put in a little plug. I do have a sexual health service at the France Cancer Center. Right now, it's for vulva and vaginal owners only with a history of cancer that are having sexual health issues. And you can do a referral through EPIC for that. And then these are my references. Any questions? Thank you so much, Dr. Lersch, for your talk um, and for providing some um, context. I know you work specifically with the Cancer Center here, but obviously applies to many of our patients. So thank you. Um, I'll open it up to questions in the room. Don't be shy. Any questions? I might just open. Um, because I think many of us um, do take care for patients uh, who have an SSRI prescription. Um, wondered any practical advice or tips you've encountered there specifically if dose makes a difference or if rather than switching, adding bupropion is yeah. ever helpful? Yes, definitely adding bupropion can help. Um, I don't see it so much to be dose related. Women tend to just either have this issue or not with SSRIs. And again, um, if they are, you know, if, if it's helping their depression and their anxiety significantly, I don't know that changing it uh, to another medication is necessarily the answer. Because again, trying to reframe whether it's a goal of your their sex is um, function and performance, or is it intimacy and closeness? And if you can reframe that, you can often eliminate the angst that patients have about having anorgasm and just explain to them that it's a very common issue 
um, and isn't a dysfunction. Thank you. Thanks so much for talking about something we don't talk about all that much. Um, I am wondering, in our folks who have a real mismatch between interest between their partner and themselves, I don't know, like I don't have a list of, you know, sexual health couples therapists, you know, do they need that? I'm not even sure how to approach like, I'm sorry your husband wants to do this all the time and you have no interest and no interest in getting there. I I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to help you. <laughs> it's a that is probably the biggest challenge and I will say I tell patients um to explicitly say to their partners if their partners are male that they not having sex with them doesn't mean they don't love them because men express their love and intimacy through sex women through intimacy and touch and so often i've had men in the office with their partners and when they see their partner go through their exam and realize how much pain they're truly having with just a pelvic exam they realize that oh my gosh this is really painful or this is really hard for for my partner and i've had male partners say I really thought she was having an affair. I didn't realize that this was the issue. So having just having that discussion and reassuring their partner that they do love them, that just because they're not having sex with them doesn't mean they don't love them. To have the discussion about, can we come to a compromise? I know you would love to have sex two or three times a week or maybe daily. I just am not ready for that in my mind or in my body, but I'd like to get to a place where we're having sex maybe once a week. Can we start to see if we can have a compromise of that? Can we start to do some intimacy, maybe on a weekly basis and sex once a month and kind of go from there and try and build up? Um, and then explain to them too that it's not, arousal is not spontaneous generally, especially if you have chronic disease um, and as we age, and that it really, you have to set the setting, you have to turn off the cell phones, you have to get rid of the distractions, you have to have time with your, your partner because your brain is so important in that. All right, any other questions here in the room? Well, I think we will leave all with permission um, to ask questions to talk about this topic um, and certainly was helpful to me to have a reminder that opening this conversation with our patients is what they want and something that we can do. Great. Thanks so much, guys. Oh, you're welcome. Some resource to have you here. <laughs> Yeah, my mouth like totally dry as soon as I start talking. Oh, 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 o